Welcome to Law More, the podcast from award-winning Hong Kong law firm, Bose Cohen and Collins, that explores issues in the legal world and beyond. Our guest in this episode is senior counsel Wayne Walsh, whose sense of adventure is taking him from his native New Zealand to New York and Moscow and many places in between. After an outstanding career with Hong Kong's Department of Justice, he is now in private practice as head of Parkside Chambers and has also written an acclaimed book about cross-border crime. Wayne speaks with our senior partner, Colin Cohen. Stay tuned. Wayne, welcome to Laura Moore. And it's a great privilege to have you here. And as I always ask all my guests, what have you been doing recently? Well, thanks. I'm very happy to be here. I'm being kept very busy at Parkside, actually, in my life and work. We had our staff dinner last night, which was great after a couple of years of not having one because of the COVID restrictions. And I'm very much looking forward to traveling down to New Zealand, where I come from originally, at the end of the year to visit family. It'll be the first time in three years that I've left Hong Kong. Great. And just for our listeners, Parkside is the name of your chambers, and the barristers all work from chambers as opposed to our solicitors, because you're all independent contractors. Anyway, before we discuss and go into your very long and distinguished legal career, let's go back to your youth. You were born and raised in New Zealand. Fond memories of your school days? Yes, I was actually born on a farm in the high country, McKenzie country, in the middle of the South Island. But we moved into the city when I was four or five years old, where I went to school. Fond memories, a very free and open outdoor lifestyle. I went through primary school and then went through high school. I had a bit of a desire to see the bigger world at quite an early age. And so in my final year at high school, I went to the US for a year on a exchange scholarship in New York and ended up graduating from an American high school. Excellent. So what happened to your rugby playing when you were in New York? Yes, well, there's no rugby there. So they had sports teams. It was a choice between American football or football, soccer. And I chose soccer because I thought gridiron was a bit over the top for me. Yeah. You attended the University of Otago. What did you study? What did you read? I didn't really know what to read. I thought law would be a good fallback for me. But after traveling, I had a real interest in languages. And I signed up for a double degree in law and the Russian language and literature, which was a six-year program. And that took you to Russia? I eventually did. I finished my Russian degree first. But in my final year, I studied in Moscow for a semester at Moscow State University. That was in 1980. It was still the good old, bad old day, which we seem to be going back to in some respects. But uh, it was a Cold War era and a very interesting time for me. But I was happy to return to New Zealand and go back to finish my law degree. But by that time, I had a bit of wanderlust still. And in my second to last year at law school, I saw an advert to join the Royal Hong Kong Police Force. Yeah, so I'm very interested because one of my previous guests here, Robbie McRobbie, he joined the police yes. force as well. So what on earth made you decide to come to Hong Kong and become a police officer? Uh, well, uh, a, a flashlight went off in my head and I thought that sounds very exciting, not quite the Foreign Legion, but sort of in that direction. And so I dropped out of law school. I had one year to go, but I said, no, enough is enough. And I came and joined uh, the Royal Hong Kong Police Force. My mother was horrified that I was throwing away, she thought, a career in law. And I was here for three years. It was a three-year posting. I did my initial training at uh, Wong Chok Hang in the police training school. Um, and then I was posted to a uniform branch in Kuntong 
Uh, at the time, it was a very industrial area, a lot of public housing and a lot of squatter huts on the hills around Kuantong, which I found fascinating. Of course, the area's changed a lot now. Then I was posted to a special duty squad, which really did plainclothes policing of street-level drug trafficking. A lot of heroin was being sold on street corners at the time. And then I did my final posting in the police tactical unit, or the Blue Berets, which was kind of like the, the, the paramilitary wing of the force to deal with riots. Fortunately, I had no riots to deal with it the time. But you did all the training. I did all the training. I was ready to go. And did you enjoy yourself? Did you, how many people did you arrest? My last guest, Robbie McRobbie, didn't arrest anybody. No. Well, he did. Half a person who went into his rooms. <laughs> no, I did arrest a number of people. The happiest person that I arrested, I think, was in Takoling in Kuntong District. When I was in the special duty squad, they were a bunch of old guys in an opium den. They were about 80 years old. They were lying out on their bamboo pillows with their big, long bamboo pipes, and we had to arrest them. And they were quite happy about it and didn't put up any resistance at all. They went to court the next morning and got a rap over the knuckles. Yeah. So after a fine career with the Royal Hong Kong Police Force, you decided, I presume your parents had come back and do some law. Well, actually, I realized pretty quickly I was not a very good police officer. There's a lot of discipline in the police force, and I guess I was a bit adverse to the strict discipline that was required. So I knew that the police wasn't for me as a career, and I went back to finish my final year. Uh, at law school, uh, graduated, and uh, then joined a firm of solicitors uh, in Auckland, Russell McVeigh, a leading commercial litigation law firm, and worked there for a couple of years. So that was my first job as a barrister and solicitor. It's a huge profession in New Zealand. And that area of the law, you were always interested in securities law. You weren't sort of, let's say, the family lawyer or the drafting the wills or doing the convincing. No, no, I wasn't really interested in that. I was interested in commercial litigation. I enjoyed that. But after a couple of years, I saw an advert to join the Serious Fraud Office, which was being set up in New Zealand. It was being modelled on the UK Serious Fraud Office, a combination of prosecutors, forensic accountants and police investigators. And I thought that would be exciting. So I've always followed my nose in terms of what I thought would be interesting. And so I ended up, uh, after a couple of years, joining the Serious Fraud Office as a prosecutor. And I was there mainly on one large case, a trial that went on for many months um, and really enjoyed that time you enjoyed the, the SFO, the law of Hong Kong came back to you and something must have brought you back into Hong Kong. Yes. Well, by that time I had married, I had met my wife in Hong Kong during the, my time here in the police and we were starting to raise a family and 1997 was on the horizon. This was now around 1992. So we thought if we're going to go, this is the time to go. So I applied to join the Department of Justice and was eventually accepted and came back at the end of, of 1992, probably about the last bunch of foreign expatriates that came in to join the department because at that time it was starting to be localised in the run-up to 1997. So you come back to Hong Kong in the Department of Justice. Where were you? Within the extradition department at that time, mutual legal assistance? Yeah, well, I was posted because of my background in commercial litigation and at the SFO, I was posted to the commercial crime unit initially, which did white-collar crime and ICAC work. And uh, after a few years, uh, I went to the extradition unit in prosecutions division. But at around that time, they were looking to set up a new unit in the International Law Division called the Mutual Legal Assistance Unit. And this was designed to handle cases post-1997 because all of the international arrangements, criminal justice arrangements applicable to Hong Kong, all the treaties were going to fall away on the 1st of July 1997 because we're no longer part of the United Kingdom. That's when I remember meeting with you because 
I was involved in perhaps the longest ever extradition battle in the planet Earth, whereby my client fought extradition for eight years in London and he came back in the end. And I remember one of our applications for habeas corpus was based on the fact that 1997, how can we go back because we weren't going to get the necessary safeguards with a new regime? And it was actually an interesting judgment. Of course, the divisional court sort of knocked us out. But we did raise points. And I always remember talking to you about that. And it was the time was interesting. It was a very interesting time because uh, we had some new arrangements in place. But the one country, two systems concept was quite foreign to most other jurisdictions at the time. And so we had cases also like uh, Ewan Launder, where he was raising similar challenges that if I'm being extradited back to Hong Kong, I'm going to end up being sent to China and we don't have a treaty with China. Well, I was involved in that case yeah, as well. I remember right. going to the magistrate's court and trying to get yeah. orders and all yeah. the rest, giving you guys a hard time. Yeah. I always enjoy this fighting with the DOJ at that yeah. time. But we had challenges also uh, in the US and in Australia where they challenged the constitutionality of the new arrangements with Hong Kong because they were treaties between Hong Kong which is not a sovereign state, obviously, it's just a part of China. So the concept is quite novel. Yeah. So at that stage, you were developing your work in the DOJ, dealing with the mutual legal assistance, and then involved in giving advice that is needed from time to time in respect to specific cases, doing extradition cases, and at the same time, drafting for treaties, because you were heavily involved in that. Yes, there's a mix of both uh, negotiating and drafting treaties, and then actually carrying out the operational work under those treaties. So there were new treaties on extradition, there were new treaties on mutual legal assistance, and there were new treaties on prisoner transfer. And we got to the point where we had about 30 new treaties on mutual legal assistance with various countries around the world. We had about 19 or 20 extradition treaties. And once we got over the initial hurdles of 1997 and the initial challenges that we've just talked about, those treaties became operational and worked quite smoothly. And we had quite a number of cases and instances where we were cooperating on an almost daily basis with a number of foreign jurisdictions. Hong Kong is a financial centre. Obviously, a lot of money is going through here. People are looking for bank records, tracing funds and so forth. So there was quite a bit of work being generated by this. And plenty of travel for you? Yes, unfortunately, my travel lust was probably one of the reasons why I stayed in DFJ. People ask me why I stayed in DFJ for so long. I was there for 25 years, eventually. One of the reasons was that it provided one, very interesting work, and two, join the DFJ and see the world because it did require travel both for casework and also for treaty negotiation, which was fine with me. You chaired a working group of the Financial Action Task Force in Paris. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, okay. Well, uh, Hong Kong was and is a member of the Financial Action Task Force. This is an intergovernmental body that's based in the OECD in Paris, and it's a policy body which sets standards initially for proceeds of drug trafficking and then quickly expanded to proceeds of all offences, i.e. money laundering. And it's a mix of criminal justice people as well as financial regulators. And they're known as the FATF recommendations. They are revised periodically. And in 2012, they were most recently revised. And uh, I co-chaired a working group which undertook that work which went on for a couple of years, and they continued to evolve. They were initially designed to cover financial institutions, banks. They've now extended to people like you, lawyers, uh, accountants, real estate agents. And now more recently, uh, they're extending to cryptocurrency platforms, uh, virtual asset service providers. So a very broad uh, and interesting reach. 
Yeah, and again, for our listeners, it is a very difficult area if you're acting for people who need help and it's money laundering cases and the client says, I like to pay you in cryptocurrency. <laughs> then you have to be very careful in how you go about the sources of the monies and the rest. Yeah. So it's, it, had, it did affect us all as well. When you're in the DOJ, I'm going to talk about some of the cases you did in yeah. which we did battle yeah. against each other. Mm -hmm. What did you enjoy most? Was it the drafting or going to the meetings or just actually getting into court and doing the cases and doing the advocacy? Yeah, it's actually preparing and getting into court, which I guess is why I've ended up at the bar eventually. But one of the reasons I left commercial litigation practice and went to the serious fraud office was I found that a lot of the commercial litigation would settle before you got into court. And I thought that wasn't really for me. So I enjoy the court battles. There have been a number of significant cases post-1997 in the area of extradition and mutual legal assistance. They tend to be long running. It's heavy litigation. We've had cases dealing with the Prime Minister of Italy at the time, uh, who was uh, under investigation for corruption uh, offences. We've had the Edward Snowden case. We've had the Kim.com case. And I'm doing a case with you right now, the Romy case. Another case which is interesting, which we did do, was with the Philippines, because the Philippines were one of the earliest places whereby we had a treaty and the treaty you were involved in dealing with the treaty of the Philippines and then we decided to do a case yes. and Mel Bowes yeah. the found he was doing it when I helped out in the case yeah. and I remember that vividly that you were doing this for the um, Department of Justice but you were all the time telling the Philippines exactly what to do. Under the treaty arrangements we represent the foreign government but at the same time they're very unfamiliar with the Hong Kong legal requirements so we have to work quite closely with them always in order to prepare the case prepare the evidence so that it works in the Hong Kong system. Yeah, because that was in 1998, whereby Tianco right. was wanted back in the Philippines. And of course, we tried to argue whether one would get a fair trial in the <laughs> Philippines. And it was an interesting argument, which fell on deaf ears, but never mind, you succeeded very well in that case. Another case, which is also I found very interesting, which I was involved in, is the Peter Chong case, because I was involved in that case, and you were heavily involved in that, whereby it was the Americans wanting him yeah. for numerous sort of, uh, how could I say, it was a bit of a naughty cases. Did a bit of robbery, hostage-taking, and drugs. Yes. Interestingly enough, our closest partners at the time were the US, uh, the UK, the, the common law jurisdictions, because we had been a, a British colony up until 1997. And we had a lot of work with those partners. Of course, in more recent time, the landscape has changed. Yes. So you were heavily involved in the DOJ. You were working very hard. You were working your way right up the top. Uh, yeah, I became a deputy law officer and eventually in charge uh, of the Mutual Legal Assistance Unit. And a long, long, very distinguished career, and you always did very well. But then you decided to leave the DOJ and go into private practice. What on earth made you do that? Well, as I said, I've been there for 25 years. My time was more or less up anyway, and I knew I wanted to do something else. I thought about perhaps a move to some sort of international organization in Europe or somewhere where I had a lot of contacts. But at the end of the day, I didn't want to leave Hong Kong. And I'd always had a hankering to go to the bar. A number of people that had been in DFJ moved to the bar and perhaps took me a little bit longer than others. But I decided that was a place to go. So I knew Clive Grosman, of course, and he was uh, head of chambers at the time. So I went along, had a chat to Clive, and we agreed that I would join Parkside. That was five years ago. 2018 yeah. as well. And did you find the change of scenery? Did you find it difficult at the beginning? You have to rely on our solicitors to sort of feed you work. <laughs> Were you worried at the beginning? Uh, I know you're very successful now. No, fortunately, I had some uh, uh, government work that I knew would 
uh, continue and I was picking up new work as well. So I, I found it great working not just for government, but also for the defense side, working for people like yourself and worked out fine. What I really enjoyed was the freedom uh, at the bar and the ability to concentrate purely on your, your case, getting away from the management and administration that you find D of J, the higher you go. Yes, and one thing which you have been able to do is this magnificent book, Cross-Border Crime in, in Hong Kong, Extradition, Mutual Assistance and Financial Sanctions. Now, I've got both editions and it's an excellent book, but it's hard work getting those books out. What made you do that? <laughs> Well, I had a period of garden leave between leaving the DFJ and starting private practice, and I didn't really know what to do. I could have traveled the world, but I'd really already done that at the DFJ. So I thought I'd write a book focusing on the expertise that I had developed in my work at DFJ. And so I sat down for six months and wrote the first edition. Excellent book. Now, very interestingly, you've been involved also with Hong Kong University, with Professor Simon Young, doing some teaching and being involved in some projects with him. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, Simon is a professor, obviously. At, at and Hong one Kong, of my guests on Law & More. Hong Kong U. He's also a door tenant at Parkside, so he's part of Parkside. And he has an interest in the same area of law that I do. And so we decided that we would start teaching a new course as part of an LLM elective next January on transnational criminal law. So we'll focus on substantive transnational offences such as terrorism, cybercrime, drug trafficking, and money laundering, and so forth, but also the procedural aspects, extradition, mutual assistance. And now I can tell our listeners, we have done a recent case, is the Romy case. This is a case which is in the public arena. Allegedly, my client is one of the most wanted men in India involved in numerous outrageous offences, breaking people out of prison, etc., etc., and Simon was my counsel, and you were for the government. And we did great battle in the magistrate's court for uh, about 10 days yeah. with experts, et cetera, et cetera. We lost on some, but won an interesting point as to whether or not the offences were all part of a treaty. And then the magistrate somehow believes Simon got it all right. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the government of India said, no, 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 no. They decided to appeal this and we went into the high court and then we had a, uh, had a right old battle. Of course, your excellent advocacy <laughs> prevailed. Uh, how did you feel about that? With Simon on my side and I'm instructing Simon and yeah. you're fighting for the government. Um, our listeners maybe don't realize how it may be a little incestuous. Well, that's one of the great things of being at the bar is that you realize you're an independent practitioner. You take the case that comes to you and you advocate uh, to your best ability for your client. And the fact that you may be against one of your colleagues one day and with them the next is really neither here nor there. Yeah. And battle still goes on in that case. And it still continues. Yes. Yeah, I always say to everyone that it's a great relationship. We do our very, very best for our clients in the most professional, proper way. We leave no stone unturned. Our objective is the results don't bother me too much. Of course, you like to win, but you make sure that the process, the system works and justice is seen to be done and the rule and law in Hong Kong should be as strong as ever by great people on one side and us on the other, testing, pushing and trying to advance the law. That's what we do. Now, I've got to congratulate you you'll now become head of chambers, 40 plus barristers to keep like herding cats, I would expect. Anyway, Paul Lamb, he was head of chambers, he was senior counsel, he's now gone to secretary of justice. How did that come about? Well, yes, following Paul Lamb's appointment, the silks and chambers got together and said, well, we have to appoint a new head. And then they all looked at me because I was the most junior, uh, senior, uh, as it were, 
Uh, so I didn't really have a choice, but I was very happy to take on the role. I'm one of the newer members uh, to Chambers, but it's an exciting time for us. And we've got a lot of bright young people coming in and we're really keen to continue our practice. We pride ourselves on our excellence, but we're also a very collegiate group of people and we get on really well together. Although there are 40 plus, we don't really have any big issues and it's a really wonderful place to work. So, so far, so good. Touch wood. <laughs> A lot of time on administrative stuff as opposed to diverting you from the legal work. Yes. Well, as I said, I thought I'd escaped that when I left DFJ, but I'm finding I'm coming back to it a bit. But we have great committees and other people who help out, so it's not a one-man job. Yeah. And just to explain to our listeners, Barristers Chambers, here in Hong Kong, we have this split profession. Mm -hmm. And I'm always using barristers. I'm a great traditionalist. I believe in going to the bar. I believe in instructing the independents to make sure of the specialities. And what is very, very good about your chambers are you've got lots of young up-and-coming barristers who are just starting their careers. We have lots of young trainees and young associates. And it's the idea of making sure that we all get to know each other and we develop each other's practice. And we're very, very keen on doing that. Indeed, we may be visiting you next week and to introduce some of my young lawyers to some of your, your young barristers. I understand that that's the case and I agree. It's a good thing. Now, like I asked all my guests, you've been in Hong Kong a very long time. I came in 81, you came in 81, left and come back. Staying, going, the elephant in the room, the call of New Zealand, the call of the All Blacks rugby team. Where are you going? <laughs> well, I'm not sure the All Black rugby team's been doing too well lately. You won that. last week against Argentina. <laughs> I'm a great believer in Hong Kong. It's been through some rough times, but Hong Kong is always going through rough times and good times. To my mind, it's a roller coaster ride and it's one of the great attractions of Hong Kong. So I have no immediate plans uh, to leave and I have faith in the future. Optimistic. Optimistic. So am I. Anyway, it has been a privilege and honour to have you, Wayne, with us on Laura Moore. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. Thank you, Colin. You've been listening to Laura Moore, brought to you by Bose Cohen and Collins. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favourite podcasting app. For more legal opinion, news and updates, please visit bosecohencollins.com or you can find us on social media. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon on our next episode.